Section 15 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, A Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Canada's New Place in the World. Part One. In 1837, a young girl of eighteen had come to the British throne. Many had wished her well, but few had dreamed that as the best-loved of British sovereigns she would prove an essential factor in a great imperial movement which was to mark the close of her reign. The extraordinary length of that reign, her homely virtues, and her statesmanlike prudence, had made her queen indeed in all her vast domains and the one common personal rallying point for all her people the year eighteen ninety seven marked the sixtieth anniversary of her reign her diamond jubilee which the whole empire now planned to celebrate in a fitting fashion the prime minister sailed for england early in june accompanied by madame laurier it was his first voyage across the atlantic it can be imagined with what interest he looked forward to seeing both the land from which he had imbibed his political ideals and the land from which his ancestors had come to new france more than two centuries before but his interest and his mission were more than personal he had great tasks to perform the most immediate purpose was to secure the denunciation or revision of the belgian and german treaties he was to sit in the third colonial conference which had been summoned for the occasion and in which all the self-governing colonies were to be represented there it would be his mission to interpret to his colleagues from overseas the new imperial and national ideals which were taking shape in canada to the general public he desired to make better known the vast opportunities canada had to offer both for the venturing settler and for the trader who stayed at home perhaps less purposed but as it proved no less successful was a desire to bring together more closely the land of his allegiance and the land of his ancestry from the landing in liverpool in june until the sailing from londonderry in august the canadian prime minister passed through a ceaseless whirl of engagements official conferences and gorgeous state ceremonies public dinners and country-house weekends he made many notable speeches but more than any words his dignified bearing and courtly address the subtle note of distinction that marked the least phrase or gesture with the striking proof which he gave as the french-canadian ruler of the greatest of the colonies of the wisdom the imperial secret which britain alone of nations had learned made him beyond question the lion of the hour the world and not least britain herself realized with wonder in the pageant of the jubilee ceremonies how great and how united the empire was and at this moment when all eyes were focused upon london the prime minister of canada seemed to embody the new spirit and the new relationship the press rang with canada's praises for the first time in my experience declared a shrewd american observer england and the english are regarding the dominion with affectionate enthusiasm 
when the tumult and the shouting died and the captains and the kings departed sir wilfrid laurier had a proud accounting to give his people Note. Shortly after arriving in England, Mr. Laurier had been made a Grand Knight Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, though on personal grounds sincerely reluctant to accept such honours, he had bowed to circumstance and the wishes of his friends. End note. The Belgian and German treaties, so long a stumbling block in the path of closer imperial trade relations, were at last denounced the definite concrete offer of the canadian preference proved effective for it was given freely in no huckstering spirit with no demand for any equivalent or that britain should reverse her whole fiscal system for the benefit of a small fraction of her trade the colonial conference was an important incident of the jubilee year mr chamberlain the new colonial secretary made the chief address and laid before the members the proposals for discussion he suggested the desirability of setting up an imperial council with more than advisory power and bound to develop into something still greater but as only the prime ministers of new zealand and tasmania gave any sympathy the suggestion was not pressed he spoke in laudatory terms of the contribution of the australasian colonies toward the british navy and invited the other colonies to make similar offers as to trade relations the colonial ministers decided to consider whether they could follow canada's example of a free preference no definite step by great britain towards zollverein or protection and preference was suggested fruitful discussion took place on asiatic immigration the pacific cable and imperial penny postage all these discussions though without immediate results served to outline the problems which were to face the colonial conference in the future after the boer war had given a new turn and a new insistence to these problems it was not until then and not until australia spoke with one voice rather than with six that the colonial conference was to come into its own as an established body for inter-imperial discussion outside the conference there was much discussion of imperial relations it was for the most part vague and rhetorical but it showed clearly the new-born interest which was stirring wide circles in the united kingdom as yet imperial federation was the only scheme for closer union which had been at all clearly formulated and though it had been discredited by the failure of its advocates to find and agree upon any feasible plan its phraseology still held the field sir wilfrid himself sometimes expressed his vision in its formulas in a striking passage in his first speech at liverpool he pictured macaulay's new zealander coming not to gaze upon the ruins of st paul's but to knock for admission upon the doors of westminster yet even these earlier speeches forecast the newer conception of the empire as a partnership of equal states a colony he described canada yet a nation words never before in the history of the world associated together making a dramatic contrast between the rebellion and discontent which marked the beginning of the queen's reign in canada and the willing and unquestioned allegiance which marked it now 
he showed that the secret lay in the ever wider freedom and self-government which had been claimed and granted from london sir wilfrid passed to paris it was before the days of the entente cordiale in egypt in soudan in siam in newfoundland the interests of britain and those of france were clashing and there was much talk of age-long rivalry and inevitable war the reports which had reached paris of the strong expressions uttered by a son of new france of attachment and loyalty to the empire and the queen had made still more bitter the memories of the few acres of snow lost in seventeen sixty three there was much wonder as to what laurier would say on french soil his message there was the same the french canadians he said had not forgotten the france of their ancestors they cherished its memories and its glories in passing through this city beautiful above all cities i have noted upon many a public building the proud device that the armies of the republic carried through europe liberty equality fraternity very well all that there is of worth in that device we possess to-day in canada we have liberty absolute complete liberty for our religion our language for all the institutions which our ancestors brought from france and which we regard as a sacred heritage if on becoming subjects of the british crown we have been able to keep our ancient rights and even acquire new ones upon the other hand we have undertaken obligations which descended as we are from a chivalrous race we recognize in full and hold ourselves in honor bound to proclaim may i be permitted to make a personal reference i am told that here in france there are people surprised at the attachment that i feel for the crown of england and which i do not conceal here that is called loyalisme for my part may i say in passing i do not like that newly coined expression loyalisme i much prefer to keep to the good old french word loyauté and certainly if there is one thing that the story of france has taught me in regard as an attribute of the french race it is loyalty it is the heart's memory i recall gentlemen those fine lines which victor hugo applied to himself as explaining the inspiration of his life fidèle au double sang conversé dans ma vienne mon père vieux soldat ma mère vendienne that double fidelity to ideas and aspirations quite distinct is our glory in canada we are faithful to the great nation which gave us life and we are faithful to the great nation which has given us liberty a little later to a brilliant gathering he uttered a prophetic wish it may be that here in france the memories of the ancient struggles between france and england have lost nothing of their bitterness but as for us canadians of whatever origin the days we hold glorious are the days when the colours of france and of england the tricolour and the cross of st george waved together in triumph on the banks of alma on the heights of inkerman on the ramparts of sebastopol times change other alliances are made but may it be permitted to a son of france who is at the same time a british subject 
to salute those glorious days with a regret which will perhaps find an echo in every generous mind on either side of the channel long cheering followed these words echo indeed they have found in these later days of new battlefields of a nobler cause and of bravery no less than of old at last this close-pressed summer was over and sir wilfrid laurier returned to a country that for a brief time knew no party every canadian felt that his country stood higher than before in the world's regard and the welcome given to the prime minister on his return fittingly marked that nationwide feeling canada's hour at last was come in eighteen ninety nine the outbreak of the war with the boer republics gave occasion for a new step in canada's national and imperial development by instituting the british preference canada had made a distinct advance toward closer union along the line of trade now by sharing for the first time in an imperial war overseas the dominion made an equally momentous advance along the line of closer union for defence the conflict in south africa had been brewing for years over and above the racial antagonism between boer and britain there was the strife unavoidable between a primitive pastoral people and a cosmopolitan gold-seeking host the transvaal burgher feared that if the newcomers were admitted freely to the franchise he and all things that he cherished would be swamped the outlander was equally determined to have the dominant voice in the country in which he was rapidly gaining the majority and what with corruption rife in the little oligarchy that surrounded paul kruger at pretoria what with the anglo-german jewish mining magnates of johannesburg in control of a subsidized press what with rhodes and jameson dreaming of a solid british south africa and fanatical doppers dreaming of the day when the last ruinek would be shipped from table bay and with the kaiser in a telegraphing mood there was no lack of tinder for a conflagration even so the war might have been averted for there were signs of growth among the Boers of a more reasonable party under Jubert and Botha. But whatever might have been, Paul Kruger's obstinacy and Joseph Chamberlain's firmness collided, and when, on October ninth, 1899, Kruger issued his ultimatum, demanding that Great Britain should withdraw her troops from the Transvaal frontier and submit the dispute to arbitration, the die was cast what of canada she had never before taken part in a war beyond the american continent yet no sooner was the ultimatum launched than offers of service from individuals and military units began to pour into ottawa and press and public to demand that a canadian contingent should be sent it was a startling change from the day when sir john macdonald had declined to take any step toward equipping a canadian contingent for the soudan it was not because canada was deeply convinced that in the boer war britain's cause was more just than in the egyptian war the vast majority indeed believed that the cause was just that britain was fighting to free a population suffering under intolerable tyranny when neutral opinion the world over condemned britain's policy 
mr balfour urged in its defence that the colonies believed in its justice true not because in canada at least there was at the outset any real knowledge of the tangled issue but simply because of the reputation which british statesmen had acquired in the past for probity and fairness nor was it that canada believed the empire's existence to be at stake many a time leaders of both parties had spoken fervently of coming to britain's aid if ever she should be in serious straits but few if any in canada believed this to be such an occasion in the phrase of a fervent canadian imperialist it seemed as if a hundred-ton hammer were being used to crush a hazelnut faith in the greatness of britain's naval and military might was strong and even more than in britain public opinion in canada anticipated a promenade to pretoria and was only afraid that the fighting would be all over before our men arrived it was just another of britain's little wars the real source of the demand that canada should now take a part lay in the new-born imperial and national consciousness the crisis served to precipitate the emotions and opinions which had been vaguely floating in the canadian mind the jubilee festivities and the british preference had increased imperial sentiment and with returning prosperity and rapid growth national pride was getting the better of colonial dependence a curious element in this pride was the sense of rivalry with the united states which had just won more or less glory in a little war with spain all these sentiments fanned by vigorous newspaper appeal led to the wish to do something tangible to show that the day of passive loyalty was over and the day of responsible partnership had begun sir wilfrid laurier was faced with a difficult problem he had not expected war i had hoped to the last he said later that there would be no war that the uitlanders would get their rights from mr kruger's government not by the use of force but simply by the means of reason applied to the case now he was suddenly called upon to decide one of the most momentous decisions that had ever confronted the canadian people he had to decide it in the midst of a rising tide of popular enthusiasm in the english-speaking provinces equally he had to take into account the lukewarmness or hostility of quebec the majority of french canadians stood where their english-speaking fellow-citizens had stood ten or twenty years before they were passively loyal content to be a protected colony the instinctive sympathies of many would be for the boer minority rather than for the english outlanders in the transvaal we may read the prime minister's thoughts on this aspect of the problem from his own words addressed to an audience in toronto blood is thicker than water and the issue may not appeal to my fellow countrymen of french origin as it appealed to you still we are british subjects and claim the rights of british subjects and we assume all the responsibilities that this entails there are men foolish enough there are men unpatriotic enough to blame us and to say that i should have rushed on and taken no precautions to guide public opinion in my own province that is not my way of governing the country 
I told you a moment ago that I would not swim with the current, that I would endeavor to guide the current, and on this occasion I tried to do so. Moreover, Parliament was not in session, and British precedent required the consent of Parliament for waging war. End of section 15